Welcome to Outside the Lines, the podcast of our host, Bob Cheviar, and co-host, Scott Shannon. Bob and Scott are longtime teaching pros in Westchester County, New York. They have both been ranked in the top 15 nationally in men's 35 and 40 and over singles and doubles. Bob is also the author of Deconstructing Tennis, the 4D System. Their goal is to help players gain a more in-depth understanding of many aspects of tennis, which are often inadequately addressed during the course of their development. Bob and Scott would love to hear from you on topics for future podcasts. Hi, all. Welcome. It's Bob Chevier here, your house, your host, excuse me, uh, of Outside the Lines. And I'm here with my co-host, Scott Shannon. Uh, took us a little bit of technological ignorance to get through, but we're we're now up and going on Zoom. And I think we've got a really interesting topic for you all today. And it is fear. What are we afraid of in a tennis match? And as preparation for this podcast, Scott and I both reread part of Alan Fox's 2010 book, Winning the Mental Match. You know, Alan is a PhD in psychology, so he has a little different take. Oh, he was also an excellent top 10 in the U.S. tennis player, has a little different take than just a pure tennis players approach to what's going on with fear uh scott did you what did you find most interesting about alan's presentation to get us up and running in this slightly new direction the thing that struck me right from the get-go was that it's important to understand that we are hardwired to have this this emotion um, of fear. And so you and I are going to be talking about how we're dealing with this reality. So you're not born with it or without it, um, he is saying. And so that really struck me as an important uh, item because you can kind of accept the fact this is part of your humanity and it's part of um, you know what you have to deal with in terms of reality when it comes to uh, performing uh, under stress. Yeah, I mean, I always like to use the example, you're in the cave and with your family, and one of you has to go get some firewood and there's a saber-toothed tiger waiting outside. And those of you that didn't experience fear back in the day, they're no longer with us because the saber-toothed tiger got him there was a good reason to be afraid uh so but the thing about a tennis match as he points out is it's largely a symbolic fight or encounter there's no real physical danger like with the cat waiting outside your cave but he also mentions one other really interesting fact about humans in, says that we have evolved to live and work in groups like wolves or chimpanzees. In other words, I was on safari a few years ago and I got to see firsthand how 
of course, there are some lions hunting down the elk, but often maybe the antelope. I don't know if they have elk there. Well, I think they might, but oh, the antelope. Okay. okay. But uh, the thing is, it was the battles between the males to see who was going to get to mate where they were killing off a good number of their own because it was important where they fit in on the social hierarchy. And tennis, of course, with when you win or lose a match, you are finding out your exact spot on that tennis hierarchy each time you go out to play. So, uh, of course, then there's some, there's also the huge discrepancy in emotions and feelings from when we win versus when we lose a match. Now, Alan Fox, I think incorrectly says that Tim Galway solved that problem for us in the 1970s with the inner game of tennis, when he said really winning or losing doesn't matter. All that counts is being aware out there and having the feel of the ball on the strings. Um, do you think that's what Galway actually meant? Winning and losing doesn't matter? Um, I mean, that's a hard, that's a hard thing to answer. Um, I mean, he may have tried to get it in the abstract where um, it's not like you're going to get eaten by the saber-toothed tiger if you lose, but uh, there are consequences of winning and losing a match. Um, I think he was trying to get us to train ourselves through the different focus exercises to not think about the winning and losing during the match. Um, but, you know, we do know there are consequences to winning or losing. So I think you and I are trying to unravel how that affects us um, before the match and during the match and after the match. So I think one thing we'd like to do today is to lay out a couple of things that players can do to get themselves better prepared for encountering the fear that almost always comes up in a match situation. For example, if you're playing someone who you're expected to beat, there's a fear of losing and what would happen there is your place in the hierarchy of tennis would fall not only just in your own eyes but in those of others so there's a little bit of fear or apprehension going on there before that match or conversely you could be an underdog and not be expected to win but maybe you have a fear of moving up in the tennis hierarchy because one thing that people really don't like even though it's inevitable is change when you're beating someone who is more highly regarded than you are you actually have to change both your opinion of yourself and how others see you uh, did you ever go through any experiences like that yourself, Scott, uh, going out for matches? Um, 
I don't think it was like an individual incidence occurrence going out for matches. I think it, it blanketed, um, you know, like all of the competitions and it was, you know, there all the time because we were playing sanctioned tournaments. We were playing for money very often, um, you know, not huge amounts of money, but sometimes significant money. And we were playing for our rankings and we wanted to win every match because it had rewards in terms of those things. And when, when you're winning those match matches, here comes, uh, you know, you feeling better about your game and maybe about yourself and also all kinds of people, um, paying attention to you. I'll tell you a really quick story. When I won in 1978, coming back from being on the tour in Europe in the fall of 77 and greatly improving my match play abilities, uh, I won a huge tournament out in Long Island, uh, the Eastern Indoor, and I beat um, a huge number of top like five or six players. Um, and it was my most successful tournament ever. And it was uh, just quite remarkable and everybody was very surprised, but um, all of a sudden I'm getting phone calls from over, all over the place because my name was in the paper and all this stuff was written about me uh, in like Newsday or whatever in Long Island. And uh, Sandy and Jean Mayer's father, Alex Mayer, he yes. calls me on the phone. I remember he calls me on the phone. I don't know him from a hole in wall, except for I know who he is. And he calls me and he's talking to me about all these like different things because I just won this tournament. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of uh, publicity about it. I can't even remember what he was asking me to possibly do, come out to New Jersey and, and do whatever. But um it was really amazing. And then all of a sudden I'm practicing with Wojciech feedback because of what had just happened in the tournament. There was like a, his, his lawyer or something, you know, said something to him that I was local and, you know, da, 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 da. And, and here I am going up to Greenwich to feedback's house or to his lawyer's house. And I'm practicing with him. And for those people who don't know who Feedback is, he was the number one player from Poland. And I think he was probably in the top 10 or the top 15 in the world, right? He he was a great net rusher. He he really, uh, without having powerful ground strokes, found right. a way to get in there and really disrupt his, his opponents. Right. So here, here's one of those things where, you know, when it goes into winning and losing matches or, you know, tournaments, you know, there's very often um, this whole thing that you are going to be paid attention to in a way that you haven't previously. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you had some at least potential fear of winning during that tournament because you were running repeatedly into highly regarded players, and yet you managed to overcome this situation, um, what what sort of tools, if you can recall back that far, maybe it's a little foggy right now, but if you can recall, what sort of tools did you use to 
make sure that those fears had a minimal impact on you? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I remember specifically um, one of the biggest factors in how I went out there, uh, I think starting from the quarterfinals where I had to play and I beat Ricky Meyer, um, was that my brother was coming from all the way from New Jersey and coming to watch the match. And with him being there, I felt such a support system because he and I are very close. And, you know, he just thinks I'm fantastic, uh, you know, with my tennis. And um, he was there. And I think that made me feel like much more relaxed and much more confident that I had him in my corner. And I must say that also um, Kirk Moritz, my doubles partner, he was um, watching the matches and his sister was there and I really was close to the Moritzes. And um, I really felt like, gee, hey, I got some people like supporting me here. I have like a little fan club. Um, and, you know, it kind of pumped me up. And so I wasn't really so fearful of, uh, the whole situation because I wasn't really just going out there alone, even though I was alone, but I have the, had those people there and it really helped me to uh, stay positive and think positively and then act positively. Yeah. So uh, yes, having that support network is, can be really key at certain moments in a player's career. Uh but Alan Fox makes one other point that I think is crucial and when he says that the way our nervous systems work, if we're consumed by fear, we can't simultaneously execute finely tuned muscle movements, which are certainly required to execute in a tennis match. So being able to get this fear managed maybe not eliminated but managed is crucial now uh you know that i've got the between point system the 4d system that i teach everyone and the thing about it is if you go through the 4d system between each and every point the four steps that you need to take there's almost no time left to be afraid because you're busy with other tasks. And Alan Fox uh, does mention in his book, he says, often I have students, I teach them what the mental process is that I want them to use. And they claim they've got it. I've got it now, Alan, they say. However, then something comes up to stress them a little bit more and get them out of sync with what they claim to have gotten. It, it, I'm saying it's it's really tough work and a tough assignment to have the mental discipline that it takes to stick to your plan and to manage that fear and nerves within the middle of a match. Um, um. Bob, I'll, I'll tell you another thing that pops into my mind. Yeah. Um, and I think you and I have talked a little bit about um, 
pre-match preparation, like what you do when you go to the tournament site and before your match, like to get alone and, you know, get away from people and have some quiet time and just kind of almost meditate and relax and breathe and just keep yourself, you know, from getting too hyper. And I remember when uh, Heinz Goodhart in 1978 was lucky loser at Springfield and he gets into the main draw. He's turning 19 during that week. He was the number one junior in the world. And this was his first year in the men's circuit on the men's ATP circuit. And he gets in lucky loser. And I get a phone call that says from Heinz, cause he and I were living in the same house. Um, and he calls me up because I was at the tournament or I was at the house and vice versa. And he says, Scott, Scott, you have to come down here to the, to the stadium like right now and you have to teach me how to serve in volley i have to play eric van dillon in the first round tomorrow <laughs> you know and i'm like okay okay i'll be there you know so i got down there and we worked out for like an hour and a half and he i mean this guy was like unbelievably good and here he was saying he has to learn how to serve in volley so he can win this match but what I remember him when when he was going to the match the next day, I was in the car with him and he has the music on and he had his headphones in or whatever. And he's just listening or we had the music on in the car, I guess. And the kind of music that he wanted to play was, I think, very specific to keeping him like on a positive note and keeping him, you know, um, you know, up up for the match, but not hyper and not worried and not fearful, but feeling good. So he knew about himself that, you know, he needed to have um, these things um, before he went to play the match uh, to help him uh, not succumb to any fear or whatever, because I think he was really nervous because the tennis world was getting like a little bit impatient with this number one junior who was not really breaking into the rankings the way they expected. Mm -hmm. Guess what, everybody? He went and won the tournament. Oh, he wow. Solomon in the finals, and he ranking went from 225 up to 60. So I thought that was a very interesting uh, thing about how he dealt with this incredible uh, situation that all of a sudden he was in. That, that, you know, listening to some good music that really gets you pumped up. Um, I know uh, the one time I beat you, I think it was just once, at Chestnut Ridge, I was listening to Another One Bites the Dust the whole week before. And, <laughs> and, and that's, that's what happened to you that time. So um, that can definitely be something to get you your mind off of what's actually going on on the court. Now, invariably, when players are afraid and they don't always realize it, they, they divert their attention from what's actually happening or just recently happened on the court into other types of behavior. For example, they become angry if things are not going their way on the court or they make excuses for why they lost their focus, or they focus on problems. I, I can't hit my backhand 
rather than what is the solution to the problem. Alan Fox, and I think I agree completely with this, feels that most of the emotions people are feeling playing tennis tend to be negative for missing shots and that having too too much of that going on is counterproductive for performance in a match um i know when i was finishing up playing you know my 8-0 mixed doubles i i never got negative about anything I was just looking at what was going on. One of my last matches, my partner and I were down five love in the first set. And I was just like, okay, I think I learned some things. And we came back and we won seven five. So um, having that ability to be more emotionally distanced, uh, but yet analyzing and adjusting, adjusting is the key word. I think, um, can help you deal with some of the fears that you might have out on the court. So, Scott, what about um, fear of winning versus fear of losing? If we go back to that subject again, um, did you experience one of those more than the other, or was it pretty even, or what would you say? Um, I think that fear of winning is much more under the surface than the fear of losing. You know, obviously losing is the negative outcome. Winning is the positive outcome. But sometimes we don't really know exactly what's lurking under there negatively for the fear of winning. Uh, the one time that I can remember it really in spades was when I was playing my doubles partner, Kirk Moritz, down in the jungle in uh, what they called the armory there um, in upper Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had just coached him through winning his match the day before, um, you know, helping him, um, uh, in, you know, supporting him during his match and kind of giving him the lift to get through his match. And here now I'm playing him and I couldn't change hats. I couldn't change hats from like being his buddy and his uh, supporter and all this stuff and wanting him to win his match. And now I had to go and be play against him and not have any of that. And he beat me and he said, oh, my God, Scott, he said, this was not this was not you out there. He said, I said, I know. I said, I just couldn't I just couldn't get myself to, uh, you know, to 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 play with. Uh, you know, some kind of uh, passion for, for winning the match as opposed to, you know, I didn't really want to see you lose. And uh, that was a real eye-opener to me in terms of the psychology of these things. Yeah, so when we talk about the, there are rewards to winning and there are some sort of punishment or whatever to losing, economists have actually found in their research in behaviorics that if you offer someone here's a hundred dollars if you do x but you have to give me a hundred dollars if you fail to do x most people will not take that bet because the losses are more painful than the victories 
And I think that phenomenon manifests itself in a lot of club level matches in particular, where people are assessing what is the quality of my opponent. And if I lose to them, I'm not really any good. So they try to avoid those situations at all costs, rather than put themselves under the test to say, they're close enough to my level. If I really am that good, I need to be able to produce my tennis against uh, this level of player. In particular, Scott, I think the biggest complaint is I like players that hit harder, so I don't want to play the lower players because every everything comes back at two miles an hour and it's no good. But it's actually a real challenge in, in my belief to be able to handle no pace balls and be able to make something happen and make that person pay for just putting nothing on their shots. So in that respect, uh, how about among your students? Do you, would you agree it's more a fear of losing than fear of winning that gets in their way? Yeah, I would say that that definitely uh, dominates uh, the landscape there. And because, you know, look, we haven't talked about this, but uh, my coach and mentor, uh, Jerry Aline, who was certainly the, one of the great students of the game and then one of the great teachers, uh, he called it a sickness, this whole thing about achieving and you know uh, needing, not just wanting to win, because when you go out to play a match, you need to, you should want to win. That's the goal is that you play to win and then you want, you want the win. Um, but the whole, the whole, psyche, your whole psyche getting keyed up to the point where you can't perform uh, and you choke and, you know, you get into a winning position and you can't finish uh, the match. You don't play well uh, when it looks like the uh, finish line is within within reach and you're going to be the, the winner. A lot of people just like fall apart, which, you know, we should talk about a little bit uh, when we have uh, some more time. But uh he said it's a sickness in our society because the emphasis that is placed upon achievement, which is another word for winning. You know, if you're achieving uh, a win in the match, if you're the winner in the match, you're achieving the, um, the sought after goal uh, that everybody seems to be going after. So you're getting it. And so you're now being more respected and you're being admired and you're looked up to and they're saying oh yeah you know i was there watching you the whole time you're great you know this this is a this is a like a sickness instead of going out there and playing creatively and playing for fun and and having the 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 wonderful experience of playing the game of tennis uh we get involved with all these other things and it prevents us from enjoying ourselves and performing at our highest levels, which is where most of the fun comes from is when you play a game like that at the highest level or at higher levels, you love it, you know, just for the act of playing. Uh, yeah, I think we see that in many of the matches that go on now that are so close seems like there are more and more close matches than back in our day, but they are so close. And there's a genuine 
enjoyment on the part of winners and losers. But I would only go back to Alan Fox's critique of Tim Galway. I don't think Tim Galway was saying winning doesn't matter. He was saying something much more like, if you think too much about winning and losing in the middle of the match, you're going to underperform because you're distracted from the things that are going to enable you to play your best tennis. That's a great point, Bob. Um, we still have some time left here. So I just wanted to mention another thing about that is that if you are, um, if you're thinking about winning and losing uh, while you're trying to play, um, you know, you've basically taken yourself out of the match and you've made the whole idea of whether you're going to win the match or lose the match important instead of playing the match. So what our listeners should remember is that it's the whole idea and act of playing to win that is going to give you the pleasure and it's going to give you your best results, even as a just as a byproduct. If you keep yourself relaxed and focused and not thinking about stupid things like winning or what's going to happen to me if I lose, you're going to play your best tennis. And number one, you're going to love it and you're going to think, you know, you're going to have the best time uh, and you're going to enjoy it. Um, but if you start thinking about this, achieving things and you get distracted, you're going to play terrible tennis or at least riddled with a lot of errors and you're going to feel terrible about the whole thing. So this is something that uh, tennis students and competitors can work on like crazy, I think, in, in any sport and any um, discipline. Yeah. So uh, because we've mentioned Alan Fox and... I thought it would be fun because uh, it was about a year before I published my book and I had pretty much most of the notes and everything was were written. It was just a matter of finalizing it. I met him and we had lunch together at the U.S. Open because his publisher happened to be a, a nationally ranked squash player who was taking some lessons with me at the time. So he was nice enough to introduce us. And I remember three key things about our conversation. One is that as part of the system I teach, at extremes in the score, like 40 love or love 40, I recommend taking more risk and running maybe not the highest percentage play, something you still think you want to win the point with, but taking more risk. An example might be at love 40, serving and volleying, even if you're, you haven't done it yet in the match, just to throw the other person for a loop. Uh, and Alan said to me, he goes, oh, I believe in that at 40 love. When I'm up 40 love, I really go for it. But when I'm down love 40, I just say, I'm going to get every ball back and I'm not going to make any mistakes. And that's the way I'm going to come back from love 40. Now, my assessment of his comment, because mathematically, the chances of changing the outcome of the match from love 40 or 40 love are equal. So you really shouldn't be behaving differently in the two situations. My assessment is, number one, 
he was in the wooden racket era and it was a lot tougher to run aggressive plays when you were playing with a little stick with a tiny little sweet spot. And number two, he himself was a very good player, but he was good because he was consistent. He didn't really overpower people. So I think his bias towards hunker down at love 40 was more reflective of knowing himself than an actual correct strategy or tactic to teach others. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. And you see it in players uh, in recent years, uh, especially, uh, you know, the top, the big three, um, when they got into trouble, they would do things that were um, out of character for them, or at least out of like what they were doing uh, commonly during the match. Uh, a lot of times Nadal and Djokovic, they would serve and come in all of a sudden when they were in trouble, hit a nice big first serve, come in and very often get a good volley to put away and start to uh, take control of the situation. So I don't think that you can sit back and just get every ball back, um, especially on the faster surfaces. I think you have to be aggressive when you get down and you have to be aggressive when you get up. I think some people uh, do it when they get ahead, they start sitting back on their heels thinking they have money in the bank and they do not have any money in the bank because you know in five minutes, all of a sudden, you've either lost that game or it's even. So I think you have to know when you need to press a little bit and take control and put more pressure on your opponent um, to you know make sure that it doesn't uh, get away from you. So I agree with you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, the second thing, then I asked him just for fun. I wanted to know if he still played matches and he said well not official tournaments but he sets up games for himself a few times a week with only one proviso that's he never plays against anyone who can beat him so he wins every time he goes out on the court now that's that's a great deal that's a confidence booster <laughs> okay um <laughs> that's something else in my mind <laughs> And then finally, after lunch, he was coaching uh, a guy who was, I think it was first round main draw. He had qualified. I forget exactly who he was, but I remember he was playing Fernando Verdasco. So I accompanied and sat with him while we were watching the match. And he was working on the mental game because that's his specialty uh, with this player. So we watched the first two sets in which Verdasco won with a break or two in each set. And Alan was saying, gee, if my guy only would be mentally stronger at this moment and that moment. And I said, Alan, have you looked at the speed gun on the first serves? Your guy serves at 83 miles an hour and he's in the U.S. Open. He can't expect to be winning matches. I think rather than transforming his mind, you should teach him how to serve. <laughs> so he, that was, he, that's a good soundbite, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Okay. So to sum up what we've been trying to get you guys in touch with today, fear 
is normal. We're hardwired to experience some of it because of where we came from, cavemen days and the like. However, good mental training, having a good between point regimen that you can follow, maybe even doing some self-hypnosis, which helps to calm you down before you go on the court. And then absolutely having the motivation to keep yourself mentally strong and don't give in to those negative thoughts in the middle of the match. One of my favorite exercises when I was coaching is I would have a pretty large group of people and I'd ask them, who is your role model? Who is your hero in tennis? And I would get any one of numerable responses of top players. And then they said to me, Bob, who is your hero? And I said, I am. I'm my own okay. hero because okay. I go out there every time and respond in a way that I have complete and total respect for. I don't always win, but I come out and give it everything and I give it a well-disciplined, don't go crazy approach to dealing with my tennis and competition. Scott, I think we're going to sign off. Anything okay, you'd Bob. like to finish up with before we say arrivederci? Yeah, just uh, everybody should remember that tennis is a game uh, where you should be having fun, enjoying yourself and keeping it positive and just, you know, keep a perspective. You know, it is a game. It's not life or death. So the saber-toothed tiger is not going to get you. <laughs> so you should take a couple of deep breaths and just remember uh, it's not the end of the world and it's not going to change your lifestyle. So go out there and uh, play great tennis and uh, have fun. Thank you, Scott. See you soon. Thanks, Bob. Take it easy.